Thank you so much, Scott. It is uh, just a joy to be with you this morning. I uh, saw this property before there was any work done on it at all, and I haven't seen it since until yesterday. So it's an astonishing transformation and uh, a joy to my own heart. I love to see faithful churches flourish, and you all are so blessed to be a part of this, and you're going to be a part of something that um, is going to exceed what you could ask or think, because the Lord will do abundantly above what we can ask or think, according to the power that is in us, even the power that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. You want to you hang on to this wonderful life opportunity to be a part of Grace Church and uh, see what the Lord is going to do in remarkable ways in the future. And for whatever little small part I have played or Grace Community Church has, has played, we are deeply, deeply thankful and blessed. In uh, coming to the Word of God on an event like this, an occasion like this when we're talking about the dedication of a church. I'm drawn to a particular portion of Scripture, and I would encourage you to open your Bible, if uh, you will, to the 16th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. It might seem that the appropriate portion of Scripture to consider when talking about a church and the life of the church would be one of the epistles written to a church. But I want to go back even beyond that. I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to the first time the word church appears in the New Testament. And it came from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. This is foundational in every sense. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus says these familiar words, I will build my church. I will build my church my church. Years ago, a reporter asked me if I had a desire to build the church. I said, I have no desire to build the church. Jesus said he would build the church, and I don't want to compete with him. I have never been in the business of building a church. That is the Lord's work, not my work. I'm just profoundly honored to be a tool that he can use to build his church. I never wanted to come to some point in my life and look back and say, I wonder if the Lord did this or if I did this. I didn't want to ever have to look back and say, this is something that I did or something that we did. I wanted to be sure that as I look back over my life, I would be able to say, this is what the Lord has done. And in order to assure my own heart that this is what the Lord has done, I needed to follow then the pattern that he outlined. I needed to to be a part of what he was doing the way he designed to do it. The church that I've been in half a century is, is not the product of my leadership. It's not something that I designed, not something that I conceived or strategized. 
I did nothing but teach the word of God for half a century, and the Lord built his church. And I'm at a point in in life at this age where my joy is almost overwhelming. After half a century, to see the kind of church the Lord builds, I'm now ministering to the grandchildren of the people I ministered to when I came. And to see the impact of the Word of God generationally being passed down. And to see what a church becomes when it follows the pattern that the Lord has ordained to build His church. There are a lot of churches around, a lot of churches in this town, a lot of churches everywhere, and yet the most common complaint I hear from Christian people is, I can't find a church. They don't mean they can't find a building. They mean they can't find a church that ministers to them in a faithful, biblical, powerful way. If somebody said to you, um, I can't find a church, you might be prone to say, well, just Google church. They'll pop up everywhere. And you'll probably find one where they dress like you dress. You'll find one where they like the kind of music you like. You'll find one where they have the options of meeting so they don't mess up your Sunday. They probably have a Saturday night option. You'll find one where there'll be a speaker there who'll make you feel good about yourself. And if it doesn't work for you, you can Google it again and try the next offering. Sad to say that most people don't even know what the distinguishing marks of a church are. And I'm not talking about the church that men built. I'm talking about the church that our Lord is building. Our Lord builds His church on established patterns. And they are laid out for us in this 16th chapter of Matthew. Now there's enough here for a three-month series. So I'm going to give you the abbreviated look at what is in front of us. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 16, and listen as I read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are Some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. There's a wide range of themes, isn't it, in that text? And many of them familiar to us. All of it ties together around the phrase, I will build my church. Here our Lord lays out for us in the sub-foundation sense the pattern for the church. This is the sub-foundation. This is the pillars below the apostolic foundation. These are laid by our Lord Himself. And there are a number of things that will characterize the church He builds. Let's look at the first one. When the Lord builds a church, it is characterized by a great confession. That's number one, a great confession. Back to verse 13, and you see in verses 13 to 16, the introduction to this section that culminates in verse 16 with Simon Peter's words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the great confession. That is the great confession. The first absolute in the true church is its view of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church is Christ. He is, according to the New Testament, the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of the church. Therefore, A true and biblical Christology is foundational to the church. That's why we read in 2 John, for example, that if anybody comes to you and preaches another Christ other than the true Christ, don't bid him Godspeed or you'll be a partaker of his evil deed. Any alteration in the person of Christ strikes a death blow at the church at its very foundation. Christology is the rock bed of the church. In 1 John, just a couple of illustrations of this, there would be many, but in 1 John, we read much about 
the Lord Jesus Christ in that epistle, but particularly chapter 4 and verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. The only way that you abide in God and God abides in you is if you confess Jesus as Son of God. Now let's back up a little bit to verse 13 and see how this comes about. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. That that particular location uh, used to be known prior to New Testament times as Panaeus. Panaeus. It was named after the Greek god Pan. Pan was an interesting Greek god, half man and half goat. Supposedly, Pan was conceived by Hermes in that area, and so his name became the name of the city. The city became filled with idols. It was idol-central in the ancient world. But eventually, Caesar conquered it, and so the name was changed to give honor to Caesar. It became Caesarea Philippi, named after Augustus Caesar, to give honor to him. So here is a, a place with a lot of history, and all of it is idolatrous, named for originally a Greek god, and it became a a place for a panoply of idols and gods to settle in around that particular Greek god. And then it it was taken to give to Augustus Caesar to demonstrate the honor that he deserved. And remember this, that the Caesars worshipped as if they were gods. So this is truly a city full of idols, much like Athens. It was in this place where The cultures of idolatry from centuries past had collided. It was in this place where gods had abounded that the disciples rise up and make the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not like these dead idols. Not even like that false god, Caesar. When Peter recognized this earlier in the sixth chapter of John, Jesus had said after the crowd had left, after he had fed them, created the food, will you also go away? And Peter responds by saying, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. And then he said this, you are the Holy One of God. You are the Holy One of God. In the fifth chapter of John, there is a very definitive statement made related to our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 18, for this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal 
with God. The foundation of the church is to understand that he is equal with God. He is God. That in the beginning the word was. The word existed in the beginning. The word was life. And the word, which is John's term for the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, created everything that exists. John's gospel begins that way. The church is not a group of people who need a motivational talk. Church is not a group of people who are seeking help for their addictions. It's it's not a place where people can feel spiritual or a place where they can mindlessly go through certain ancient traditions and rituals. The church is the gathering place of those who make the great confession. And summing it up, in the early church, here is the confession. Jesus is Lord. That is the great Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. Uh, When you listen to people sometimes talking about Jesus, they, they might even say, well, I believe in Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I might add a footnote. So does every human being on the planet who's ever lived. It's a personal relationship with him, and for most of them, it's a very bad one because he will judge them everlastingly on perfect knowledge of everything about them, every sin held against their account. Everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus. He will raise every person from the dead who has ever lived, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. True believers say this, not I believe in Jesus or I have a personal relationship with Jesus. True believers say Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Lord. This is our confession. If you believe, says Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is affirming his work on the cross as the resurrection affirmed it by the Father's act, if you believe that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. The church is a gathering of those who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of the living God. He is fully God as well as fully man. John says that the reason for the writing of his gospel at the very end of his gospel, and I I think the reason for the writing of all four gospels is summed up in a statement about Christ, John 20, 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospels are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is Lord, and that believing you might have life in His name. The church is the assembly of those who have life in His name because they believe Him to be who He is and they confess Him as Lord. 
Now, the backside of that, if you say Jesus is Lord, the backside of kurios is doulos. He's Lord and I'm his slave. What should be most inimitable about a church, what should be most dominant about a church is its Christ-centeredness. We are those, says Paul in Philippians 3, who worship in the Spirit, give glory to Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. We are Christ-exalting, Christ-worshiping confessors of the deity and lordship of the Son of God. Whatever people should discover about a church when they come in the door and sit down, it should be that Christ is being exalted. If you turn for just a moment to 1 Timothy, you will have maybe a bit of an ancient experience. Um, because this, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, is most likely, verse 15 and 16, an ancient hymn. In verse 15, Paul talks about the church, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, and then the church's common confession. The common confession of the church, that is the the confession that is true of each person who's a part of the church, is this, great is the mystery of godliness. By common confession, homologamonos, We all say the same thing. There is no disagreement. All believers, all in the church, all agree to a common confession that Jesus is God in the flesh. This is unanimous in a true church. And it's expressed in this very likely ancient hymn that is even put in your Bible in a kind of poetic form in the text so that you can see it as such. Here's what the church confesses. Great is the mystery of godliness that God took on human form. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Manifest in the flesh, that's his virgin birth and his incarnation, justified or vindicated in the spirit, that's dekaiao, righteous. His life was a righteous, sinless life, seen by angels or observed by angels. He was observed by angels at his birth specifically, at his temptation through his life, at his resurrection, taken up into glory, that's his ascension and then proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. That's the preaching of the gospel. So the church is made up of those people who make this common confession concerning Jesus Christ. You are the Son of God. You are Lord. 
or with Thomas, my Lord and my God. That's not all. There's something else about a true church. Back to our text. A great communication. A great communication. Verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter was blessed because he knew what he said. He was blessed to know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was blessed to know that. He was blessed to make that confession, but it wasn't a solo confession. He was really speaking for all the rest of the apostles. He was the spokesman for all of them. He was blessed because the ability to make that confession was a gift from heaven. It had been revealed to him, apocalypto. It was like an apocalypse to him. It was a disclosure. It was, it was heaven communicating. It didn't come from flesh and blood. That is to say, he didn't learn it from man. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14, understands not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually discerned, and he is spiritually dead. The church knows who Christ is because we have received from heaven an apocalypse. We have received from heaven an uncovering, an unveiling, a revelation, a great communication. And it's come down from my Father who is in heaven. This is the great communication that is the stewardship of the church. As we saw a moment ago in 1 Timothy 3, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The truth is what comes down from heaven in divine revelation and scripturated in the Bible. And this is ours for which we are stewards. So how do you know a church? You know a church because there's the common confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God, Jesus is Lord, and there's a Christ-exalting, Christ-centered focus that defines that church. The second thing you know about them is that they are consumed with hearing from heaven the revelation of God that has been delivered to them. Foundation of the church, again, is built on the word from heaven, the word of God. First Peter one twenty three, we're begotten again by the word of truth. John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. We're saved by the truth, we're sanctified by the truth, we're edified by the truth, we're encouraged by the truth. It's all about the truth. When you walk into a building it says it's a church, you ought to be literally immediately confronted with two things. The exaltation of Jesus Christ and the primacy of divine revelation in Scripture. That's how you know you're in a church. This repository of divine truth in the church gives the church its power. Follow along into verse 18. Somewhat controversial verses made so by the Roman Catholic Church. I also say to you that you're Peter... And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. This is a little bit of a play on words. 
You are Peter, that's a small stone, Petros, but on this Petra, that's a rock bed, I will build my church. He's not building the church on Peter, and Peter is not the first pope. He's contrasting the small stone Peter with the rock bed on which he builds his church, which is the confession. The church is built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that apostolic confession. And then, of course, the apostles became the authors, the apostles and associates of the apostles, the authors of the New Testament. So the Lord literally deposited the revelation into the hands of the apostles and their associates. The foundation of the church, then, is not only Christ the cornerstone, but the apostles and then the prophets who proclaimed divine revelation so that the church is built upon Christ and Scripture. Christ and Scripture. Scripture. What is a church? A church is a gathering of people who come together to exalt Christ and to hear from heaven through Scripture. This gives the church its power. It is the Scripture that makes the church invincible. It is the Scripture that causes the Lord to be able to build the church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The world can kill the false church. Satan can kill false churches. Nothing can threaten the true church. I will build my church. And the euphemism for death, even death cannot stop it. Even death cannot stop it. All death does to the true church is catapult them into eternal glory. And even martyrdom from the earthly standpoint becomes the, the, the blood of the martyr becomes the seed of the church. The more the church is persecuted, the purer it becomes. The purer it becomes. Satan is given the power of death and he wields it, but it doesn't kill the church because the church has this invincibility based on the power that is divine. That is its very life. And notice the authority of a biblically centered church in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's not speaking to Peter alone. He's speaking to Peter and the apostles and all others who are a part of his church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This seems like massive kind of authority. But it's really simply saying this. I and you can say to someone. I have the key to the kingdom. I can open the kingdom door to you. Now, if that sounds grandiose, I remind you that the door to the kingdom is the gospel, right? Do you know the gospel? Then you have the key to the kingdom. And you can open the door, and you can invite sinners to come in. And when, using rabbinical language, when someone rejects, You can say, you're bound in your sin because you will not believe and you will affirm what heaven has also said. 
You're acting for heaven. If someone rejects the gospel, they're bound in their sin. Heaven knows it. God knows it. And you can say it. I can say to a person, you reject this gospel, you are bound in your sin, you will perish. That's authority. It's not my authority. I'm only the agent of heaven. But if someone, on the other hand, repents and believes, I can say to them, you have been loosed from your sin and know that heaven has said the same thing because the conditions for both have been revealed in Scripture. The church's authority is based only on its application of the Word of God. I've said this a number of times when people talk to me, um, do I have personal authority? I have no authority. My education gives me no authority. My gifts give me no authority. My experience gives me no authority. I have no authority in the church, zero authority in the church, except when I speak the Word of God. And the Word of God has all authority. If a church is to really be the place where the keys to the kingdom are hanging and where people can take the keys and open the door to the kingdom, then it has to understand that it must function in consistency with divine revelation. It must preach the true and pure gospel. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Think about this, but a true church, a faithful church, putting the revelation of God in Scripture into action is heaven on earth. It's doing what heaven is doing. And heaven is simply a term for God. You act for God when you say to a sinner, here's the gospel, here's the door to the kingdom If you don't believe, you are bound in your sin, and you can say that on earth because that's true in heaven. If they believe, you can say you're loosed from your sin because that's what heaven has said. We have authority on the earth. It's not ecclesiastical authority. It's only biblical authority. So the church is to be the place where Christ is exalted, And where the Word of God dominates and gives power and authority. There's a third characteristic of a church here. Let's call it a great contrast. There's a great confession, a great communication in Scripture, and a great contrast. This, I think, is so interesting. Verse 20, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. That's just so counterintuitive, isn't it? You've just made this great confession. You've made this great declaration of truth. And now he warns them. I mean, this is some serious stuff. It's not a suggestion. It's an outright flat warning that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Tell no one. Sounds like anti-evangelism or uh, anti-great commission. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because they had a wrong expectation of Messiah. They thought Messiah was going to come throw out the Romans and bring them uh, the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to Abraham and David and reiterated by the prophets. 
They thought the Messiah, when he came, would bring in the kingdom, and Israel would be exalted in uh, elevated ways that the Old Testament talked about, and uh, the Gentiles would become their slaves, and they thought that's what Messiah would do. They were looking for that kind of Messiah. If these disciples go running out and saying, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, this is the Messiah, they're going to take those terms the way they understand them. And there's going to be a complete misunderstanding of his purpose. They had reduced messianic expectations to politics, military power, even to kind of a welfare state, free food. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. He did not want them to go out and say this, listen, until after the cross and after the resurrection. That's why the Great Commission comes at the end. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom, listen, has no connection to the world. Did you hear that? What happens in American politics, what happens in American social structure, what happens in American culture has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They exist in two completely different dimensions. Doesn't matter what direction America goes, up, down, or sideways. Doesn't matter what laws are made or not made. They have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God operates in the supernatural realm, not in the time-space natural realm. Conversely, the church has no mandate to rearrange the culture. It has no responsibility to fix the culture, to rearrange sinners. The culture is going the way the culture will go. It makes no more sense than trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's irrelevant. The whole thing is going down. A true church does not get caught up like some hybrid entity that is half spiritual and half political in trying to fix what's superficially or even profoundly evil about the lost world of darkness under the prince of the power of the air. We can't fix that. What we're in the business of doing is rescuing souls out of it. You want to be a good citizen, but you want to live peaceably. You want to be a good citizen, you want to be a model citizen. Submit to those in authority over you. And when that was written, Nero was on the throne. If you're going to be persecuted, if you're going to be resented, it can't be for your politics. It has to be for the gospel. There is so much confusion today with regard to what the church is. As all these church leaders running all over the place wrangling about political issues, economic issues, racism. The kingdom of God has no concern with earthly kingdoms. They rise and they fall. 
In Romans 1, they go the same way all the time. The wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against them, cyclically through all of human history. They, they have maybe religious foundings and religious roots like American Western civilization, but eventually they go into a sexual revolution, then a homosexual revolution, then a reprobate mind, and it's over. The cycle goes over and over and over. The culture will change when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom and rules with a rod of iron. Our Lord says, don't go pronouncing me the Messiah because it'll get you into a very difficult situation because they have certain expectations and they will try to force the issue on me. Remember, that's exactly what they did in the Gospel of John. They tried to take him by force and make him a king. Remember that? And he had to disappear. Moralism, superficial moralism, social activism, cultural conquest is not the mission of the church. Look, I don't like the things that, that dishonor God, that go on all the time. I, I have the mind of Christ. I have a Bible. I know how God feels about all that's bad and wrong and evil. But the calling of the church is not to fix that on the surface, but to rescue people from it. I'm not into Judeo-Christian ethics for the culture or traditional values. I wish the culture wasn't the way it is, but it's going to be that way because it's the kingdom of darkness. What does the gospel do? It rescues you from the kingdom of darkness and places you into the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light. So the church has to understand that it has to recognize a great contrast between its existence and the world. Another very important truth in the foundation of the church is to understand a great conquest. A great conquest. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. There's a great conquest, the cross, verse 21. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. That's the great conquest. That's a conquest of sin and death and hell, isn't it? That's at the heart of Christianity. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. What an incredible verse. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the preaching of the cross is to those that are perishing foolishness. Those that are perishing is the category of the unredeemed. To, to all of them, the cross is foolishness, but to those who are believing, it is the power of God, right? Our message is foolishness to the world, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, I'm determined to know really nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. It's this great conquest that we proclaim, the conquest over sin and death and hell. This is, this is tremendously challenging in the early church. Can you imagine being a believer and going into the Gentile world like the Apostle Paul and those that traveled with him and saying, I'm here to tell you that the, there's only one God 
and you're standing in the middle of temples to all kinds of deities, and you say there's only one true God, and that true God came into the world in human form as a Jew over in the land of Israel, and um, he lived, and then he was rejected, and then he was turned over to the Romans, and he was executed. But three days later, he rose from the dead, and he is the only Savior of the world, and the only hope that you will escape eternal hell and judgment. And you need to believe in this crucified Jew, and you need to confess him as Lord, and that you are his slave. This is insanity. Are you kidding me? How would a Gentile react to that? That's insanity. I should believe that the God of the universe, the only true God, is a crucified Jew, and I'm supposed to be his slave? Wouldn't it have been easier if the Lord hadn't called for people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, call him Lord, and admit they're slaves? Does it have to be so intense, so abject? Does it have to go against the grain of their own experience of slavery? But this has always been the gospel, and it is foolishness, and it is to the Jews a stumbling block. But what marks a church is the proclamation of the glory of the gospel, that God made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, sin for us. What does it mean he made him sin? This is the message. God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner right? God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. In fact, God treated Jesus as if he were the consummate sinner. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe throughout all of human history. God punished Jesus for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe through all of human history. All that debt, all that guilt amassed as if Jesus had done all those sins and God punished him. And God expended the full fury of his just wrath against all those sins in three hours of darkness. You say, if people are going to go to hell and stay there forever, how could all of the wrath of God for all of those people through all of human history be expended in three hours? The only answer I know is that an infinite amount of wrath could be poured out only on an infinite person. So we preach the cross, we preach righteousness, we preach sin, judgment, substitutionary death, the imputation of our sin to Christ that he dies in our place. Our message is, are you ready? Sin, 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 judgment, the requirement of righteousness. How do we escape that judgment when we cannot please God with the righteousness of our own? By faith in Christ, His righteousness is credited to our account. And we are made the righteousness of God in Him, that same verse says. So on the cross, God treats Jesus as if He lived your life. 
Put your trust in Christ and he'll treat you as if you lived Christ's life. Stunning. Why did Jesus have to live for 33 years? Why did he have to live a full life from an infant to an adult? To fulfill all righteousness so that there could be a full life credited to your account. On the cross, God sees you and your sin being punished so that he now can look at you and see Christ. Our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us by faith. This is the cross in all its glory, vindicated by the resurrection. What makes a church a church? A great confession concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. A great communication. The authority of Scripture dominates. A great contrast. It is transcendent, separated from the machinations of the world. A great conquest. It proclaims the cross and the resurrection. Number five in my little list. The church necessarily then faces a great conflict. It necessarily faces a great conflict. It shouldn't be easy and it won't be. And I'll show you how fast this becomes apparent. Verse 22. Peter pulls Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And that's, that's really bold. Wow. Saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Never happened. Our Lord turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. As soon as you put your agenda above God's, you have put the power in the hands of Satan. How in the world can you go from saying, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, because it was revealed to you by my Father, to a few verses later, speaking for Satan. That's a pretty quick move from heaven to hell. You have to understand this. The true church is intimately and actively engaged in a war against Satan. In the strongest language possible, Peter contradicts Jesus. And Jesus hit him with the most severe rebuke ever. Get behind me, Satan. Anything other than the will of God is the work of Satan. You are in my way. You are a stumbling block. It isn't because... Peter wanted evil against Christ. It wasn't that he had evil thoughts toward Christ. He loved him. But he put his own design in the place of the will of God. When you do that, you become a stumbling block. It's foundational to the church that it is going to be faithful to the revealed will and purpose of God and never do anything from a human level. 
that could diminish the purposes of God because that would be to do Satan's work. This is the true church. A great confession, a great communication, a great contrast, a great conquest at the cross and the resurrection and it lives in conflict, great conflict. If your church is super popular with everybody, Satan's in charge. If God's in charge, it runs counter to the world and you're going to feel the battle. Then there's just a couple to wrap up. A great contradiction. A great contradiction. Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to lose his life, whoever loses his life, rather, for my sake, will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's a great contradiction here. And it's simply this. We are lifted up by laying down our lives. You want to be a part of this church? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Blanket statement. Other places Jesus said, if you love father, mother, sister, brother, more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. If you think you have to go home and take care of some business, bury your father, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus went went so far as to say, if you want to be my disciple, hate your own life. Hate your own life. This is so completely opposite what's going on in churches today. They're all designed to make people feel good about themselves. As if God is some heavenly genie who wants them to give him the list of the stuff they want. And they rub the little lamp and he jumps out and grants all their wishes. He wants you successful. He wants you prosperous. He wants you healthy. He wants you wealthy. No, he just wants you dead. Selfless, empty, bankrupt. You don't come to God with your agenda. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, said the hymn writer. The church is not made up of people. The true church is not made up of people coming to get what they want from God. But that's the trend today, dominant trend. That you've got to make people feel like the whole thing exists to get them what they want when they want it. And our Lord says absolutely the opposite. The church is a place where people are emptied of themselves. I reject the man that I am, the woman that I am. I reject all my own ambition. I reject everything that is my own desire. I want only what Christ wants for me. I will not cling to my life. I will not save my life. I will lose my life. 
Losing your life is what it means to be a Christian. If you hold on to your life and try to gain the whole world, you forfeit your soul. And your soul is everlasting. So there is a, there's a great contradiction at work in the church that is absent from contemporary churches for sure. So man-centered, self-fulfilling. One final thing to say. Church looks to a great consummation. A church looks to a great consummation. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His holy angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The end of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, you have such a simple, beautiful testimony to the heart of a true church. It says this, to wait for his son from heaven. Is that what characterizes our church, our Christian life? He that has this hope in him purifies himself. If you're waiting, anticipating the coming of the Lord, that is a purifying anticipation. We don't live for now. We don't live for success now, fulfillment now. We live for the future. We live for the coming of Christ. And our Lord actually says to them, some of those who are standing here will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What in the world did that mean? There were a few there, namely Peter, James, and John, who would have an immediate preview of the kingdom. Because in chapter 17, they went from this to the transfiguration. And they saw the preview of the second coming. They saw the glorified Christ. You know, we just need to live for the return of the Savior. Far better is it not to depart and be with Christ? Far better. This is the church. This is the church the Lord says, I will build. All of these things are the, the, the heart and soul, the preoccupation, the passion, and the deep desire of a true church. It is that church the Lord will build against which the gates of hell will not prevail.